Hey everybody, this is John, and you're listening to the Pharma Sessions Podcast. Medical Affairs is covering more ground than ever, and on this show, I sit down with all types of Medifairs people to discuss the opportunities and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I spoke about Medical Affairs leadership with Danny Duplessis. Danny is the EVP of Medical Affairs for Kioa Karin, a board member at the Medical Affairs Professional Society, and was previously the SVP of Global Med Affairs for GSK. We talked about why Danny switched from primary care to working with pharma, if a business background is important in medical affairs leadership, leading big organizations versus small organizations, and how important an understanding of the patient journey is to everything med affairs. So let's jump right in. How did you get into medical affairs in the first place? And what was it like back then? <laughs> by, by chance, like, like most other people, I think, right? So um, I suppose the, the, the brief version is, um, you know, after finishing medical school in South Africa, I did a master's in clinical pharmacology. Um, really enjoyed that. Uh, we still had conscription military service at the time, so I had to do that for 18 months, which was okay because it was sort of mostly in the primary care setting. So mm -hmm. I you know worked as a doctor um, and then I had a an unplanned opportunity to to open my own part-time primary care practice in a, in a so-called previously disadvantaged community so I did that and did sessions at A&E and two local hospitals um, I always thought that I was not going to do primary care practice and specialize at some point, right? So, but I did that for two and a half years and really enjoyed it and then got to a point of, okay, done that. Uh, now, what's the next part that needs to kick in, right? Am I going to specialize in anesthesiology or psychiatry or what am I going to do? And then my dad said, well, you've always liked numbers and business. What about the pharmaceutical industry? And I'm Okay, so I applied and got a job uh, at Lilly in Johannesburg, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to do this for two or three years. If I don't like it, I'll do something else. And 29 years later, I'm still <laughs> in the and that's how I got into medical affairs. Why medical? Well, that was the logical next step as a medic. You know, wow, this is a pharmaceutical company. It has a medical department, so yeah, let me get into medical affairs and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a, a lot of opportunity in the company, worked different parts. I worked in commercial, I worked in pharmacovigilance, I worked clinical operations, um, you know, and then later on I I wanted to learn the language of the business and did an MBA as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, but by far majority of my time is medical affairs related roles. And the MBA was was interesting because it's not something like we see a lot of MDs, we see PharmDs, we see PhDs, we don't see a lot of MBAs, but how did you feel, like, was that helpful for you having, having the business training? So I, I enjoyed it, John, because when, when I did the MBA, I'd already been in industry for, I believe, um, well, eight years, nine years almost, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, I, I, I wanted some additional mental stimulation. I thought, well, okay, this is a good thing to do. So I had an opportunity to learn the theory of a lot of things that I've already seen in practice. I'd mm -hmm. already done two years marketing and sales. So I did strategy, marketing plans, all of those things, understood finance, you know, I had accounting at school, yeah. but it was an opportunity to just get a different level of knowledge. Um, 
And what I particularly enjoyed was around, I suppose, you know, uh, HR and organizational design. Um, Interesting. And it gave me, an, I suppose, more of an academic grounding of stuff that I'd already experienced and seen. And with the HR and the organizational design, I mean, coming with the global role at GSK, you know, massive organization and then European role at a smaller company, Akio Akirin, was, was there any similarities, differences between those two, or is it so unique company to company that you can't really <laughs> draw, <laughs> draw that? Actually, you know, when, when you start working with people, mm -hmm. they're people, right? Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how big or small the company is, your team is usually a similar size and it's made of, of human beings. So there's a lot of stuff that really is the same, right? Of course, there's differences. Of course, there's a portfolio that's different. Of course, there's a life cycle that may be different, you know, launch versus make life cycle, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the basics around motivational theory, engagement, performance, capability, organizational design uh, is, is really very similar, to be honest. It's too easy, I think, for human beings to say, yeah, you don't understand, it's different. Yeah, in my yeah. company or it's different in my country um and of course there are differences but right. in general there's much more similarities than what there are differences when you look at human beings and the industry well it's interesting too because like we've been talking for i don't know 10 minutes now and and it's really so far about dealing with people right and not not the science right and i'm just curious when you think of if we can tie back to the maps paper right they say these are the five areas of increasing strategic importance their words uh, for medical affairs which are data dissemination and communication external relationships strategic insights evidence generation and patient engagement when you're when you're prioritizing this are you looking at who's on your team and where should they spend their time are you looking at what's the one that I think is most important? I'm sure you're doing multiple, but I guess, how, how do you prioritize that? And what are you, like, how do you set goals for that? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. So, so I think, you know, as much as I talk about people, there's obviously then in addition of, you know, being engaged in the business, what we do, aligned purpose, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's of course, then also the underlying knowledge and capability and skill set, right? So, of course, in medical, um, we have to have the scientific knowledge background of disease, of medication, treatment options, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we also have to have the ability to communicate effectively, to engage effectively. So if we look at those sort of areas of increasing importance, all of them are important. I like to start with the patient right now i'm completely aligned to call it patient engagement because that's a very broad term really what does that mean right so first of all we need to appreciate that this does not necessarily always mean that you talk to patient or you promote to patients which i'm sure you know is only allowed in the us and new zealand right. uh, nobody else or nowhere else can we you know do any direct to consumer promotion for prescription only medicine Having said that, the engagement with patients is particularly important to understand the journey that they are on, or the so-called odyssey some people refer to. Um, and that is true really from a very early point. So 
once we understand the challenges patients have, specifically for chronic diseases and more specifically for rare diseases, then we can actually understand where are the gaps? What should we be looking at to generate appropriate data that all stakeholders can use? And how do we communicate that in an effective way? So for me, that should really be the starting point. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the priority really, um, how, do we, how do we know what are the type of goals that we can set? You know, it's, uh, it's one of those topics that's, that's sometimes very difficult, but sometimes also easy if we don't overthink this, right? So mm -hmm. for example, if we can show in an early development plan, that we've got some patient insights, what is important for patients, their families, their caregivers for a specific disease, and we can build that into our clinical development plan at an early point, mm -hmm. clinical trial design, right. what makes sense, what is important to them, and what is important to payers, because, you know, if it's not reimbursed, then it's not particularly valuable, right? right. So um, those things are, are really important to show that we have actually done that, right? We, we have interacted. And this is true for, for the whole life cycle, really, um, of, of uh, you know, our, our diseases. So uh, that's why I would always start with the, the patient engagement. Well, it makes so much sense, too. And it also goes back to this idea of having medical affairs, I guess, as the lead for all of these different groups, because if you are engaged with your patients, somebody, somebody said something that stuck with me where he's like, what's, what's the value to a patient of being able to walk up the stairs without pain? Right. And that's really, really important. And it makes sense that that would also be important and need to be communicated to the access group or the HUR, HUR group. And then for the clinic, clinical group, right, you need to understand as you said, once, once you kind of have your, your objectives, how do you set endpoints for the trials so that at the end of the day, you achieve the formulary status that you're looking for, or, you know, however, however the reimbursement works in a particular country, right? But this, I, I love the idea of the patient as the base, because that's what we're all trying to do is improve patient lives. But then you, there's a level of expertise of understanding what is that patient journey and how do I communicate it to the different people that are all involved in all of these different decisions? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think what is really important to understand is that at all times, the relationship between the treating physician or the treating clinical team and the patient and their families and caregivers, that, that really is an important relationship that the industry should stay out of. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is to help different stakeholders actually understand potentially different perspectives that they haven't thought of, right? Right. We know, got a great example of that actually, where uh, in a genetic disease, uh, there was an interesting discussion where, where clinicians said, well, you know, don't bother with two weekly injections for for these small infants. It's just not going to work. It's too difficult, right? Sub subcutaneous. Uh, injections. The question then was put to a number of parents uh, of these small children, and they said, listen, absolutely no problem. Very easy to do. It's sort of quick. 
but to struggle on a daily basis to get these horrific oral bad tasting medicine into our our babies that's right. really tough so injection every second week no problem right, right. clinicians just thought they knew the answer Right. And that's a, an important role that industry can play. Uh, it's so true, right? Because everybody has their siloed visions where it's like, hey, the medicine works. Exactly. And, but then we know adherence is a massive problem, right? Exactly. And even, you know, with the virtual clinical trials, you know, how do you do, make sure people are adhering properly at home? It's, it's all very complex. Um, and the idea of starting with the patient, I think that makes sense because that's where like it could fall apart at the pharmacy, it could fall apart at, at the patient. There's a there's a lot of places that yeah. things can go wrong. So kind of building from the ground up, I think, is is important. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so let me ask you when you you had kind of alluded to the challenge of setting specific goals. And this is something that a lot of medical affairs people that I've talked to, I think have tough time answering. So maybe this will be the hardest question of the day, but how do you, um, how do you like quantify or measure effectiveness in, in medical affairs? Yeah, it is an interesting uh, question. It's a relatively common question, uh, especially from our commercial colleagues, right? right. Uh, on how, how do you know that you adding value or that you are making a difference? Now, of course there's uh, for, you know, as you know very well, for, for any type of metric, you know, there's the quantitative metrics and the qualitative metrics. Quantitative um, is usually relatively easy, right? It's activity-based, how many times have you done this, how many people have you seen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The question always, and it's not only in medical, is so what? You know, mm -hmm. what does that mean? And that does become a little bit more difficult. You know, how do we know we've made a difference? Um, this is a journey that we're still on specifically in medical affairs to get into that qualitative discussion. You know, have we made a difference? Have we impacted clinical practice in some way, shape or form by sharing information and data, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, this needs to be done in an, an appropriate way, right, based uh, on uh, on the science, clearly. So how do we know that? Um, we're starting to move into asking for feedback, you know, what a novel idea. <laughs> but we have to do it in the right way, because very often our customers, our prescribers, would, when they do get the question, you know, was this useful, they would say yes, and they have the same answer for all companies, and you actually don't quite know what to do with it. But it is getting better as well. People are, I think, becoming more honest, especially if you have a good relationship, is to, to ask for genuine feedback. And we're starting to see more use of, you know, tools like Net Promoter Score, for example. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting ways to, to look at so what? Now, there's also a resistance to some of the conversation because there's a concern sometimes that we're overstepping the right. mark potentially when we start talking about have you influenced somebody to change their mind and people are sort of, oh, you know, that we, we can't do that. Right. We're presenting science. I think we can. Mm -hmm. I think we can, right? If it's an appropriate scientific dialogue, and a prescriber have the wrong information or the wrong understanding, and we can help them understand fairly objectively what it actually means, mm -hmm. and he or she changes their mind, we have then influenced them, appropriately so. That mm -hmm. is indeed part of what we need to do. Again, from a patient perspective, 
making sure that the right patient gets the right product at the right time. And all of right. the other versions of that sentence that you may have heard in the past. Yeah. And so I'm wondering from a, I mean, we, things have gone so digital since COVID, right? And now there's all this, this massive amounts of digital behavior. Do you, it's almost like digital real world evidence on physician, yes. behavior, right? So yes. do you look at that at all when you're setting strategies, guiding, uh, measuring effectiveness? Are you just, rather than ask the question, look at how people are, are acting? So that's part of it, absolutely, right? So you're right, uh, you know, that's maybe one of the, the good things that came from uh, from the COVID pandemic is to actually explore how how do we keep the wheels sort of rolling forward when it comes to patient care, education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, digital, of course, is not new, but I think it did expedite, the pandemic expedited the channels of communication and the, the I suppose, the the variety of channels and really move into an omni-channel approach. What does that mean? Understanding, you know, what different stakeholders want. How do they communicate? You know, is there generational differences uh, between, yeah. you know, virtual interaction versus face-to-face -face or uh, or otherwise? So um, in that omni-channel approach in digital world that we live in, of course, we look at the, the, the more digital, if you want, metrics around, you know, unique number of hits, for example, return, how long do they stay if it's an educational program. Yeah. And that does give us at least uh, some indication as a surrogate whether it is useful or not. Because, you know, and I know if you go on a website and you spend 30 seconds, it probably is not what you were looking for or it's not useful. Yeah. But if you hang around there for five or 10 minutes, well, there's something there that resonates, right? So it's a good surrogate to have. Yeah. So I think as we go along um, and as we all get more comfortable with this way of interacting, you know, apart yeah. from maybe saving a bit of money, a lot of money, and going a little bit greener, maybe a lot greener, it is also effective. It works for people, right? It works for people. And the younger generation, of course, is much more used to this than maybe my generation. Yeah, well, it's, and then it, it all sort of circles back to the idea kind of what you were saying earlier about taking the patient journey and parsing it out and giving it to different segments, it's then, you know, I've, we, I've talked to oncologists who are like, listen, every single patient I treat is high risk. I'm not seeing people, period. You know, if we're going to talk, we're going to talk over, over a screen. Yeah. And so if it's, a, if it's mandatory for some, other people are saying, I can't wait to get back to ASCO. I can't wait to go out and have a glass of wine with people, right? My colleagues that I've been seeing for three years. So it's this idea of being flexible, I guess, in both the mess, getting the right message. It's the version of right drug to the right patient at the right time. It's like right message to the right yeah. or segment of people and understanding how to put people into that. Yeah. But um, let me ask you the last thing, just in our last couple minutes here, over over your next like one to three years, the sort of short-term, short-term version, what, what are you most excited about? And I guess anything else you'd like to share about what you feel personally are you're excited about with the future of medical affairs? Yeah, sure. No, thanks for, for asking. So, so for me, the, you know, the, the key things that I think there's really room for, for improvement still, we've, we've all touched on, right? So the first one really, is understanding the perspective from a patient uh, or from 
family or caregivers, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and especially in rare diseases where I work now, but it's true for all diseases. Yeah. The second thing is to understand where do we actually get data sources, right? Because that's mm. changed as well. Um, specifically real-world evidence, big data, you know, collaboration with the Amazons of the world and Google Health, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a completely new ball game now than what it was, you know, 29 years ago when I started. And then the third thing is the communication, you know, the, because the, the data and, and how we change that into, you know, usable information and knowledge uh, and then communicate that through different channels, you know, is back to, to the whole uh, omni-channel approach, if, uh, if you want to, to use that uh, terminology. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's, it's the same topic, but how we do it is very different and it will continue to change and it will change maybe quicker as we go along as well. Um, what really gets me excited about this, you know, it is, we, we are making a huge, huge difference for patients from an industry perspective. There are so many examples that people either forgotten or they don't know right so whether we're talking about insulin or treatment of hiv aids or first antibiotics or polio vaccines or COVID vaccines right we can make a huge huge difference as an industry and then in that industry i think medical affairs is really just so critical to make sure that there's that clinical perspective i.e the patient perspective that is considered through the whole life cycle of development right and that if we do that right as a function then we definitely by default have shown why we are one of the strategic pillars of the industry alongside r d as well as commercial and access 